Fax Machine. In case you haven't noticed, it seems like every other podcast these days is about true crime, dedicating countless episodes to the thorough and somber examination of some mysterious murder or some heinous heist. It's well known that when it comes to podcasts, crime does pay. We here at Fax Machine are not above jumping onto that bandwagon, no matter how late to the game we are. Our episode this week will focus on crime of all kinds, from the murderous to the mythical. Each of us will share a fact that pertains to our criminal theme, and we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by our facts. First up is Emily. What do you have for us? So this week I learned that Chief Inspector Robert Ledrew, a criminal investigator on the police force in 19th century Paris, famously solved a case of homicidal somnambulism, or murder while sleepwalking. And the best part? I'll get to it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So... Full disclosure, I actually first read about this case way back in high school, like many moons ago, when I was peak consume all things Sherlock Holmes phase. You know, some people were emo, some were jocks. That was my version of rebelling. Um, (laughs) Were your parents criminals? (laughs) Must have been so upset. It all makes sense now. Reading detective books. (laughs) But it's stuck with me ever since. So I was actually really excited to revisit it for this episode. And I was surprised to find that, despite the splash it supposedly made at the time of its occurrence, it's actually quite difficult to find primary documentation of this case nowadays, though I did find one semi-biographical but heavily sensationalized book written about it by this detective fiction author named Frederick Otten. Uh, And I gotta say, after skimming through it the other day at the New York Public Library, in my opinion, he Otten had written it. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, bad. I will say, too, that it was actually the first book that I've ever requested at the New York Public Library for research purposes, um, which if you go there to retrieve that, it's actually in the Rose Room. So it's like this huge, gorgeous, oh, yeah. vaulted room Beautiful. with these frescoed ceilings dedicated to the, the sort of pinnacle of scholarly pursuit. So you can imagine me sitting there in this hallowed hall reading what was essentially smutty pulp fiction. (laughs) (laughs) That is mainly what libraries are for these days. I'm not even exaggerating when I say that easily three-quarter of the 200 pages were dominated by mistresses, prostitutes, and I guess, unsurprisingly, LeDrew's bouts of syphilitic stupor. Right. Yeah, you know, as you'd expect. Um, (laughs) I will say that there was enough crime-solving, so like jewel thieves, anarchists, standard Victorian-era stuff, to suggest that he was actually an accomplished detective. Um, But I should mention, too, that the singular case referenced in my fact, and literally the only thing this guy is barely remembered for today, is only the last four pages of the book. (laughs) So, yeah, not my most productive afternoon at the library. (laughs) But anyways. Did you know that going in, or did you have to read all the other pages first? I, oh no, I was flipping through, like, where... Where, I, where is this? <laughs> like, what, what else is there to say? And like I said, just prostitutes. Endless oh. prostitutes. Anyways. <laughs> what, what's this book called? So the book is called The Two Lives of Robert LeDrew, an interpretative biography of a man possessed. Wow. <laughs> what was he possessed by? Syphilis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anywho, so back to the actual case that I was supposed to tell you guys about. So, to set the scene, it was the summer of 1887, and Ledru was summoned away from his post at the Parisian Surete to investigate the mysterious disappearance of some sailors in the coastal city of Le Havre. Upon arriving, he read up on some case files, interviewed the locals, you know, detective stuff, and then turned in for the night at the local inn. He woke up the next morning like it was any other, retrieving his revolver and personal items from underneath his pillow and placing his sock-covered feet, strangely damp, on the floor. In there. <laughs> I hate a damp sock. <laughs> Just the worst feeling. <laughs> upon reporting to the local police station, he learned of the discovery of a corpse upon the beach. Those sorts of crimes being his area of expertise, he was brought in on the case and accompanied his colleagues to the crime scene. The victim was André Monet, a prison shopkeeper who was visiting the area for health reasons, as he did back then. Ledru paced along the beach, examining the body, the surrounding sand, and a set of footprints, and witnesses reported that he appeared sullen and perturbed. He ordered plaster casts to be made of the footprints, which were themselves distinct in the absence of a big toe on the right foot, and he studied them silently before abruptly saying that he had solved the murder and storing back to the inn. He was not seen again until the following morning when he rejoined the Law of the Police. Was it him? I think he I did. Think it. I think he did. It. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Sorry, what were you saying? Emily? <laughs> Spoiling it. <laughs> when he rejoined the Law of the Police, who had by then located the bullet, he examined the bullet, noting that it came from a German pistol, boarded the next train to Paris, and supposedly told his superior at the Surete, I have the killer. And the evidence, but I lack the motive, because it was I who killed Andre Monet. Oh, nice. I just realized. <laughs> <laughs> what a shocking See, conclusion! Wasn't it worth the big reveal that no one saw coming? <laughs> now, now, why was he missing a toe? <laughs> I feel like that part of the story was glossed over. Yeah. Something, something's up there. I never got a clear explanation for that, but... Probably the prostitutes. Based on, based on the book, either prostitutes or anarchists. One of those two. Did not have a good reputation with either class. Anyways, so yeah, he turned himself into his own department for the murder of Andre Monet. He was missing a big toe on the right foot, as you guys caught, and the bullet fit his revolver perfectly, and his socks were wet as they would be after you walked on the beach and shot someone in the middle of the night. And he concluded that he had done just that. There are many other ways your socks could get wet, though. I don't think that's really the nail in the coffin. Yes, it was interesting. He he (laughs) discarded the fact that his pants were also wet. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't want to talk about that. (laughs) TMI, TMI. They were a little more genteel back then. (laughs) So in terms of what happened afterwards... Superiors did not believe him. After all, who does that? (laughs) And they kept him in protective custody nonetheless. Um, But to kind of sort of test his own theory, uh, devised a test without his knowledge. So, like I said, he was put in prison, and they put an empty revolver under his pillow in his cell. And according to the guards who were watching him at one point in his sleep, he actually found the revolver, walked up to the bars, and fired at them at point-blank range. Wow. So it was pretty well established. (laughs) (laughs) There were no bullets. (laughs) They, They thought that one through. So given that, it was pretty conclusive at that point that he could actually kill someone in his sleep. 
and he was diagnosed with homicidal somnambulism. Um, but he wasn't sentenced to prison. Rather, he was sentenced to spend the rest of his days, which ended up being another 50 years of his life, on a farm outside of Paris, under constant watch by guards and nurses, and locked into his bedroom every night for the safety of everyone else around him. And with a loaded revolver under his pillow for some reason. <laughs> They're just playing with fire. <laughs> I mean, they locked the door, so... <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but oddly enough, the the book, the one that I flipped through, regrettably, uh, kind of made it seem like they pinned his uh, psychological condition on his syphilis. And I found one source claiming that such mental ills were associated with the disease at that time, but I haven't found anything medically conclusive um, about whether there's any correlation between that disease and sleepwalking. Um, the only disease I know that is known to cause or at least has been suggested to cause sleepwalking when you didn't have it like previously your whole life or a history of parasomnia is Parkinson's disease. Apparently really? people can get it. Yeah. Um, something about like the systems that are perturbed in Parkinson's disease are also important for sleep. So you get like, in addition to the, like the tremor and stuff, you get like uh, disruptions in your sleep, you know, cycle and stuff like that, that may contribute to that. Wow. Yeah. Funky. Okay. Anyways, just wanted to share that fact because in my mind, it's the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, So there are a couple instances in the U.S. where sleepwalking was um, used as a defense in murder trials with success. Um, And actually, the first one was in 1846, and the case was Massachusetts v. Terrell. Um, And so this guy, Albert Terrell, uh, was acquitted of murdering this prostitute in Boston. And, like, I'm not going to recount exactly what happened, because it's real. I mean, all these murders are really, really gruesome. I mean, like, horrible. Yeah, Um, really sad. And... But basically what happened is he killed this prostitute and then fled to New Orleans and was arrested there. Um, And that his lawyer argued that Terrell was a chronic sleepwalker um, and that had in fact committed the crime and fleed while he was asleep. um, And had basically just woken up in New Orleans Mm. like, what? (laughs) What is happening? Um, So the jury apparently agreed and found him not guilty. Um, Although many uh, commentators at the time did not buy his version of events. But it is actually, as, as far as I know, the first U.S. Uh, legal case in which sleepwalking was uh, used as a defense successfully. So, um, so he was how far away from New Orleans to begin with? Boston. Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was really tired. He, was, <laughs> yeah. he slept for a long time. I can't even sleep on a plane when I'm trying. Like. <laughs> I mean, it may have also been something to do. Maybe he, like, had woken up at some point and just, like, panicked and, like, run or something. Like, maybe he really... I don't know. But at some point, he... he, he the, allegedly, that he, in the course of sleepwalking, had murdered someone and then fled and then later was was arrested and used this as a defense. And it was the first time it was ever used successfully. But it was followed up by a couple other famous cases. Um, so, one... Fane v. Commonwealth. Basically, it was this guy fell asleep in the lobby of a Kentucky hotel, um, and then a porter shook him to try to rouse him uh, awake, and he drew a gun and then shot him. So then the porter, who had been shot three times, managed to hold him down on the floor, and this guy, Fane, repeatedly yelled, Hoo-wee! Like, over and over and over again. And then he got up, left the room, told the witness that he'd shot someone, and then he, but he was like, I don't know who it is. And so when the bystander told him who he'd shot, he was, like, really sad about it and conveyed how, like, devastated he was by that. Um, 
And so he was initially found guilty of manslaughter, um, but then the conviction was reversed on appeal. And apparently the evidence was that he had a lifelong history of sleepwalking and that he'd been like incredibly sleep deprived before the attack, which might exacerbate the onset mm-hmm. of the condition. Um, and so he, and that fact, the fact that he had been sleep deprived and that he had this lifelong history of parasomnia wasn't included in the first trial. And so he, that was uh, declared a mistrial. I'm not actually sure what happened to him after that. Um, but I, I, I think he didn't end up going to prison. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I was looking into how those cases are usually handled the few times that they've come up. And the, def- the term that kept coming up in terms of the defense, uh, from what I was seeing, is called automatism. So basically the idea that the defendant is not aware or in control of their actions when they're making the particular movements that uh, constituted the illegal act. So it kind of falls under the same purview as innocent by reason of insanity, but it's a sort of... Um, kind of a subsection of that where the person is just simply unaware and not in control of their actions. Right. So this fact had me look up some kind of less serious sleeping infractions. Uh, so if you are <laughs> sleeping and you murder someone, you might get in trouble. But if you are sleeping and you're not supposed to be sleeping, you also might get in trouble. So I looked up <laughs> sleeping while on duty. Um, it's a thing that I'm familiar with. <laughs> so, oh, how so? <laughs> I, I can give you a first-hand account of how to sleep at work. Um, when I was in grad school, I, I used to sit um, in, in in the first bay where everyone who walked in the door would walk by. So I would arrange it so I had two like things open on my screen, and I had one hand up, and I had a pen in my other <laughs> hand, and I had this great pose where my head was totally at, at rest, and I could sleep for an hour like that. Oh it looked like God. I was copying notes. <laughs> And like it took it took the girl who sat behind me almost a year to figure out that I was doing it. She's like, "Have you been doing that this whole time?" That is artful. Wow. <laughs> and so yeah, I thought I was just this like maverick criminal. You were a okay. You were a I was gonna say you were a kid napper. <laughs> but it just but it's not really relevant to what you were doing. So I was very excited that I thought of that pun, but then immediately was like, in what way was he? So I saw you like go like this, and I was like, oh, I could say he was a kidnapper. And then I was like, that's not how kidnapping works. I know, we just did the that same thing. <laughs> Anyways. Well, it brought, it brought us much joy. I've been doing this for too long. But so I, I also thought it was something shameful and worth hiding. And I think that's generally agreed upon. Most professions... Sleepiness is weakness, Rob. Everyone knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, like, so the careers where, like, it it could result in termination are airline pilots, train conductors, uh, air traffic controllers, police officers, and security officers. Um, And social media has been really rough on them because a lot of times in the last 10 years, a security guard came across another security guard sleeping and took a picture and put it on social media, Uh and they Uh... both get fired. Wow. Because one gets fired for sleeping, and the other one gets fired for violating the security like phone right. policy. Right. Um, so that's just dumb. But there's there's one place where sleeping on the job is actually a virtue, um, and it, it is is a tenet of some parts of Japanese culture called inimuri, which means present while sleeping, huh. and it's seen that it may occur in work meetings or in classes. Um, and a scholar named uh, Bridget Steger, who focuses on Japanese culture, writes that sleeping at work is considered a sign of dedication to the job, such that one has stayed up so late doing work or worked to the point of complete exhaustion, and therefore it's excusable. Right, but that's context-dependent. So if you're if you're sleeping 
like at your desk in the morning when everybody comes in because you stayed there all night, that's good. If you're sleeping like at, you know, noon in the middle of the meeting you're supposed to be leading, that's probably not good. Yeah, I mean, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> I I have slept through some of the most important talks I've ever gone to. When when and this is for I guess this is a nerdy aside, when Jennifer Doudna came and spoke at a Rockefeller lecture, like Right in the peak of the hotness of CRISPR, uh, the genetic engineering technology, I got to the lecture a little bit late from lab. It had been a very long day. I came alone. There was one seat in the second row that was open. (laughs) I walked down and I sat in it wearing my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt. And I proceeded to fall asleep within six minutes. This week I learned that in 1796, a man forged an entire play that he claimed was by William Shakespeare, and people at the time were so willing to believe it that he was able to sell it to a producer, and it was actually made out as a play to a sold-out crowd for one show. Where was this? So this was in England, the land of Shakespeare. Right. Let me tell you actually a little bit about how this came about. So this is a a man named William Henry Ireland. He was a, a scholar and a playwright. Um, and an author in his own right. And he actually, he went by the name Samuel, it seems. Um, his father is named Samuel Ireland, and his uh, his brother, who passed away at a very young age, was also Samuel. And he, he went by Sam in honor of his brother. So a lot of papers refer to him as Samuel. William Ireland had a knack for discovering lost works of Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a niche skill, but okay. Yeah. And so he did it in a kind of amazing way, where... He knew that it was going to be hard to believe, but he was a, uh, a scholar of letters. He'd, he had studied the works of Shakespeare extensively, and he had a collection of dated paper. He, he was about 200 years after the time of Shakespeare. And so it's a little hard to believe that, that these works would just keep popping up. But he started by just learning the bard's signature, and he would sign. I think he, his first forgery was, um, let's see, having used the bard's manuscripts and autographs, he composed what he purported to be a lease between Shakespeare and John Hemmage. Um, that basically said, this is my, my plot of land. Um, and it looked like a, a document from the correct time, and it had all the right names and, and it kind of tracking on it. And so people said, yes, this is. This is a Shakespeare artifact that's been discovered. And so he got into this habit of saying, I have an anonymous friend who has come into possession of a case of things by Shakespeare, and he's going to release them to me, like, slowly, over the course of time. <laughs> And everyone Whenever was like, I need money. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, sure, yeah, that's what anyone would do. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, he eventually found uh, a note, a love letter, uh, dearest Anna Hathaway. Um, he see, had a see. The thing about that just puts up a big flag right there is that didn't like William Shakespeare and Anna Hathaway hate each other? Like they were really. At odds, I feel like. He bequeathed her his second best bed. Yes, we, we all covered that in an earlier podcast. So yeah, I'd say they're, yeah, probably not marital bliss going on there. So he was also guilty of revisionist history, we're saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also, one thing that I was caught on a little bit earlier, so you mentioned that he forged Shakespeare's signature. Yes. Which is interesting because the inconsistencies of Shakespeare's signature and spelling right. of his name is often cited by people who... Um, believe that Shakespeare didn't write his own works as proof of him not being the true author of his plays. Ooh. So that's interesting, interesting that, to Interesting me, that yeah. William Shakespeare never misspelled Ben Johnson's name. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a nerdy Curious. fucking joke. <laughs> 
Uh, but he so uh, Ireland continued to keep forging and releasing things, saying, "Look, I found this even more extensive thing, and I found this even more impressive thing." Uh, so he found drafts of King Lear. Um, he found a few leaves um, with altered text from Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> As it was called. It was being workshops. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> She's like, this just didn't sound right. Well, as long as he... <laughs> the Hamlet. Drop the the. <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> but so, and I've actually found um, a summary of this from the Washington Star, a uh, 1932 newspaper that was just talking about other crimes happening at the time. And I guess this was a thing you could do in the newspapers in the 30s was bring up a completely unrelated case from 150 years ago <laughs> and they're they're talking about like oh people have done these crimes kind of like this one guy a long time ago <laughs> and so they tell the full story uh and i think this is a great line where it mentions he keeps releasing more and more ridiculous works of shakespeare until finally he overreached himself by writing an original blank verse tragedy <laughs> which he called vortigern and rowena and attributing it to shakespeare vortigern <laughs> vortigern <laughs> <laughs> And so, the thing, and it sounds it sounds silly to us because it's not a Shakespeare play, right? But he he actually did a lot of his due diligence, um, and so Vortigern and Rowena are both characters kind of in the the pre Arthurian um, Britain history, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe they're they're Saxons, um, and they they were Saxons of some great importance. And this particular story is based somewhat in in the legend, but um, it's it's actually if you. If you're like me and you just read the cliff notes, it's really hard to tell that it's not Shakespeare. <laughs> um, scholars poured over it and said that it was simply written and that the blank verse was poor and that like there was no poetry to his words and, and even more kind of cruel things about this foreign <laughs> Shakespeare play. Um, but it's like the, the story itself sounds kind of Shakespearean in terms of plot. And so the brief synopsis is there's a king who likes Vortigern and... Uh, he gives Vortigern half of his crown. What's, what's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> He's a great guy. Um, well, Vortigern was really loyal to this king, um, and so he gave him half the crown as a reward, and this really loyal guy immediately says, well, if I kill the king, I'll have the whole crown. <laughs> Wait, as, isn't as chopped loyal. his crown in half and was like, here you go. Now it won't sit in either of our heads, but sure, enjoy. <laughs> Here's the first tiara. This, yeah, <laughs> this is worthless now. Oh, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> But so he plans to kill the king. Um, he eventually actually does. There's a fool in the court who hears about it, and he warns the kids to run away. So the kids run away, one of them dressed in drag, because Shakespeare, Shakespeare <laughs> has to happen. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, other people who are studying in Rome hear about his, his treachery, and they lead an army back to fight with Vortigern. And at the same time as all this war is breaking out, Vortigern falls in love with Rowena. Marina is the daughter of one of his supporters, um, and so that's nice, I guess, unlike most Shakespeare plays. And there's a big fight. Um, and in the end, a bunch of people die, but none of the main or named characters die at all. And they actually just forgive him. And the fool gives the final speech where he admits the play was not very tragic and, quote, none save the bad do fall, which draws no tear. Yes, so like, not Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> like, if there's like, no one left but Horatio at the end, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, if you if you're gonna fake a Shakespeare play, but you don't have the guts to kill a main character, like get out of here. <laughs> Gotta be ruthless. <laughs> but yeah, so interestingly, he he produced or he wrote this play. He was part of the production the day before it was gonna be played. An author, a Shakespeare scholar, released like a 400 page book 
like debunking all of his forgeries. And it was like, this guy's a sham, this is why, this is why, this is why. And this latest play is the worst of all. Well, luckily, if it was the day before and it was 400 pages, nobody had the time to read it. <laughs> yeah. People were like, well, I'll do this after the play. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I want to see the play first. <laughs> nobody reads the book anymore. <laughs> Where's the spark notes of this? Ah, forget it. <laughs> there was one line from the play that the main actor, in the, in the single time it had ever been acted in history chose to use as his platform to say, I know this is fake. And it, it was a line that said, this solemn mockery about something in the play, about, mm. about the kinghood of Vortigern. And he repeated it twice. And the second time, he turned and stood and stared at the, the audience. And he was like, this solemn, solemn. mockery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I mean, I think it would still be really interesting to, like, if there are, like, other known, like, fraudulent Shakespeare plays, like, Fake spear, if you will. Um, I think it, I think it'd be really interesting to like see them put on seriously. You know how there are like uh, generators that sort of emulate like mm-hmm. text from different books mm. and scripts. I wonder if there's a Shakespeare version. I, of that. I, I, Shakespeare. Yeah. I didn't see it exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and I don't know if you guys looked any of this up. There, there is a, a collection of Shakespeare apocrypha, um, and this is, I would say, not even the most well-known example of like fake spear. Um, yeah, but that's that's a thing now. Hashtag fake spear. Hashtag fake spear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, one one cool thing before I get onto any other fake Shakespeare plays was this play debuted on April second, and a oh. lot of people, a lot of people, were like just do it on April first. You'll save yourself a world of hurt. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, we're telling him, and he was like, "No, this is real." And if he, oh, had... but it's so great because the fool is the only one alive at the end. Yeah. Oh, wait, well, no, no everyone's all alive. alive. But the they're fool all... gives a speech. So it could the be like, the last it could be like, on April Fool's Day. And then they'll be like, how would Shakespeare have known? <laughs> <laughs> He's a genius. Did he wait. invent it? What? <laughs> Something you mentioned that, like, these plays, like, this is now a 200-something-year-old apocryphal play, which makes it a historical play in its own right. And so in 2008, it was actually revived, and someone oh, performed awesome. this it. Oh, awesome. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. yeah. This is really cool. And it got, you know, tepid reviews uh, (laughs) for all the aforementioned problems with it being, like, not very interesting. (laughs) Did that lone actor do the same thing as the original? I actually... (laughs) Turn to the audience. I actually don't know, but that is a wonderful question. That would be Um, interesting. And it it wasn't a full production. It was a student production, but it was done by a a student group somewhere in Britain. And interestingly, uh, yeah, this one is one of the more forgotten works of Shakespeare's Apocrypha. Another one that's interesting that draws on British mythology is a play called The Birth of Merlin, which puts itself in even kind of further pre-Arthurian times. Uh, and what's interesting is that it has a lot of similarities to another play called uh, Cupid's Revenge, a play by uh, Beaumont and Fletcher. And so it looks like uh, it, it came out in an earlier time period. It was released or it performed first in 1622, and it was said it was just a, a work of Shakespeare that had been lost or kind of misplaced, which time period-wise made much more sense. And some people even think that Shakespeare may have edited it or had, oh. had a role in looking through it and revising it. Because hmm. there are things in there that people say, this is very Shakespearean. Uh, but it would be hard to say whether that's because he wrote it or because someone who watched his plays live right. had, had put it in. Right. Um, so that play has actually kind of stood for a while, just kind of of unknown authorship, uh, interestingly. But it, it, it has fallen into the Apocrypha. So they believe it is not canonical Shakespeare. This kind of was the end of Ireland and his father. It ruined their reputation as publishers, um, as scholars. Um, he, he left England for a while, lived in France to try to escape the kind of ignominy of being a Shakespeare forger. Um, it's kind of unclear if he was always the person who forged it. Some people think his father actually played a very big role in it. Some people think his entire family knew nothing about it. 
Um, he wrote a book in 1804 that was like the confession of William Henry Ireland, where he said, I did it and this is how. And it also didn't sell very well because it was also a boring book <laughs> about how he <laughs> copied a signature and did it several times over. Um, but so he, he was unable to kind of like save the name of his family. Um, and he, he, he didn't die in obscurity or in poverty, but he didn't really have any success after that. But he also didn't suffer any legal consequences to having like created and sold several fake works of Shakespeare. Right. So he kind of just kind of just walked away not too bad so your fact is all about other people forging shakespeare plays well i looked into some pretty well-established theories that shakespeare actually forged his own plays or rather that he didn't write them so the shakespeare authorship question has been around since the mid 19th century um and actually over 80 authorship candidates have been proposed throughout the years though no one actually questioned his authorship during his lifetime but of these, the most popular um, and the ones that have the largest followings behind them are Sir Francis Bacon, uh, Edward de Vere, Christopher Marlowe, who's also a, a contemporary of Shakespeare um, and a playwright, the author of Dr. Faustus, and also William Stanley, uh, who is suspected in part because he has the same initials. William Stanley, William Shakespeare. Mm. Convenient. But there's a variety of evidence that anti-Stratfordians, as they call themselves, uh, cite for their theory that Shakespeare did not write any of his plays. Um, for example, his poor and kind of humble origins would have prevented him from being uh, sufficiently well-connected and knowledgeable of the aristocracy and the court that he writes about so much in his plays. Um, they also question his literacy. There's not really any documentation of his education. Uh, his handwriting and inconsistent spellings of his name kind of lend credence to this as well. Um, and also there's a lack of various records about his career as a writer. But in digging through this more deeply, there were a few anecdotes that just kind of popped out to me as funny that I'd like to highlight. So the first one is about the first written record ever of someone questioning Shakespeare's authorship. That was in a book written in 1848 called The Romance of Yachting by Joseph C. Hart. And the first thing to note about it is that it doesn't really have anything to do with yachting at all. <laughs> hmm. um, was, from, it a, was it a metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, because apparently it was just this random guy rambling on about whatever he felt like. Um, but my favorite thing that I found about this book um, was actually his publisher, uh, Avert Dukink, which is already kind of funny in and of itself, <laughs> um, actually sent the book to Herman Melville, another <laughs> better known author, for review. And if you guys remember a few episodes ago, I presented uh, the Hatchet Job Awards oh, yes. for right. exceptionally scathing literary reviews. And I have to say, I wish they had been around in Herman Melville's time because here are some really fantastic excerpts of his letter back to his friend Evert about romance of yachting. You have been horribly imposed upon, my dear sir. The book is no book, but a compact bundle of wrapping paper. And as for Mr. Hart, Pen and ink should instantly be taken away from that unfortunate man upon the same principle that pistols are withdrawn from the white bent on suicide. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Prayers should be offered up for him among the congregations, and Thanksgiving Day postponed until long after this, in quotes, book is published. <laughs> what great national sin have we committed to deserve this infliction? Seriously, Mr. DeKink, on my bended knee and with tears in my eyes, deliver me from writing out upon this crucifying romance of yachting. <laughs> so yeah, not the biggest fan <laughs> of this book. Um, as I said, I remembered only now in that it was the first to propose that Shakespeare did not write his own plays. 
And also, shortly after its publication, uh, one of the earliest contenders in the sort of real author race was Sir Francis Bacon, who I mentioned earlier. And the biggest proponent of this theory was an author, an American author, named Delia Bacon. As far as I can tell, no relation to Sir Francis Bacon. But she doubted Shakespeare's authorship for some of the reasons that I described above and proposed her theory in The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded. And her theory is basically that Sir Francis Bacon and Sir Walter Raleigh uh, actually had the educational and social means and also political motivations to produce the works of Shakespeare. So this actually sparked a wave of conspiracy theorizing and a very dedicated following that's actually still around. Uh, the Francis Bacon Society, or the Baconians, as they call themselves, still publish like a quarterly magazine asserting that Shakespeare is not the true author of Shakespeare, <laughs> and the way is Bacon. For the record, the way is always Bacon. <laughs> the way is always Bacon. In terms of the approaches that Baconians take to sort of assert the truthfulness of their theory, it, in my opinion, reaches Da Vinci Code level of craziness. So, for example, Delia Bacon, who I mentioned before, actually attempted to have Shakespeare disinterred because she thought that she had found instructions in Sir Francis Bacon's correspondence that there was proof of his authorship under Shakespeare's grave. Um, there are also many theories around that time that there were ciphers and cryptograms in Shakespeare's work um, that were concealed there by Sir Francis Bacon you know, for astute future readers to discover his true identity. And uh, there was a prominent Baconian uh, named Dr. Orville Ward Owen, who actually invented a mechanical cipher machine on which he basically loaded a 1,000-foot strip of canvas, uh, pasted over with Shakespeare's works, so he, so he could scan through them and search for ciphers more easily. Wow. Yeah, a lot of dedication. Um, and from his decryption, he supposedly found a series of locations where the proof was hidden, including at the bottom of a river, in the walls of some medieval tower, in various graves of people associated with Sir Francis Bacon or his contemporaries, and searched all of them that he was allowed to search and turned up nothing. So Shakespeare won, Baconians zero. There were a bunch of famous art forgeries, too, that I don't think we, we have the time or our bandwidth to go into, but there's one that I just thought was really kind of cool. Um, you're familiar with uh, Vermeer's uh, Girl with a Pearl Earring? Very, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so Vermeer was a, a much beloved artist in the early 20th century. And so one Dutch artist, Han van Meegeren, uh, took to making duplicates. And he didn't want to be a forger, um, but he actually started by drawing replica. He said, I can draw as well as Vermeer. And he drew uh, a replica of one of his pieces. And someone said, that's an original Vermeer. And he was like, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I'll ring you up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so um, he made a bunch of them, which was a mistake. <laughs> um, but he kept selling them. And it's estimated that he sold over $60 million worth of fake Vermeers. Wow. Oh, um, God. Including one to the government of the Netherlands. But do you know what really did him in? And this was, this was a ballsy move. He had sold at least one piece of art to the Nazi officer Hermann Göring. Oh. And it's like, these guys are serious. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So it even got to the point where, where Göring was suspicious, and he's like, wait, who, who did you buy this from? And he said, oh, I can't disclose the name of my, um, my clients. And Göring was like, all we right. have ways of making you talk. <laughs> Un unfortunately, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, he was arrested for treason. Oh, <laughs> so, God, yeah, so that, that's what ended that. <laughs> <laughs> 
This week I learned, despite its close association with the Old West, there are more bank robberies per year in modern-day Dayton, Ohio, than there were in the Western United States during the entire frontier period. So, if you watch, like, any movie about the Old West, you are bound to see some gang of outlaws stride into some dusty frontier town, make a cursory glance around for lawmen, walk straight into the town's bank, draw their guns, and ride away with all the cash in the safe. Sometimes there would be a shootout, or the outlaws would use explosives to break in through the back wall of the bank, or whatever. This plot is repeated over and over and over again, and makes for some really great films, as well as some really, really bad ones, (laughs) and has shaped the popular imagination of what it must have been like to live in the Old West. The thing is, though, it basically never happened. So, like, I feel like we all have this notion of the Old West being just, like, lawless and constant bank robberies and train heists and stuff. Mm -hmm. But a pair of economic historians, um, I think one of them is actually at the University of Dayton, hence the Dayton reference in the book. Mm. (laughs) Basically, that's the last time you're going to hear Dayton mentioned in this. It was just a convenient (laughs) comparison. Um, But anyway, so this pair of economic historians went back and, like, meticulously combed through the records in the 15 western states most commonly associated with the quote frontier west and that would be arizona california colorado north and south dakota kansas idaho nebraska nevada new mexico oklahoma oregon utah washington and wyoming so roughly between the years of 1860 and 1890 and they definitively confirmed that there were about five. Wow. Maybe as many as ten. There were some ones that they couldn't confirm 100%, but in terms of 100% confirmable, there were about five. Um, and so a couple really famous ones, like, for example, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, these were real people um, who committed a few real uh, bank robberies kind of later in the sort of, like, Frontier West years. They got away with a lot of money. There were some really interesting stories about them, and they have captured the popular imagination as well, along with their sort of, like, uh, being chased by the Pinkerton Agency and mm-hmm. those really interesting stories as well. But those were very isolated incidents and not something that was widespread by any means. So one of the questions I was wondering is why were they so rare? Um, And a couple reasons have been suggested. So a a very simple reason suggested by some historians is that just everyone in the Old West was armed to the teeth. I mean, it was not worth the risk. There was a significant likelihood of death for any, like, would-be robbers of a bank. Um, Other more nuanced explanations focus on the architecture of the bank buildings themselves or the layout of the town. Um, So, for example, in the typical frontier town, the building shared walls and faced inward toward a main thoroughfare. This meant that the bank building, usually which was in the center of town, was flanked by other establishments, leaving only the front and the back walls susceptible to being, like, blasted through. Hmm. Um, The front of the building faced the rest of the town, which would leave the robbers in full view and vulnerable. And the back wall was usually double reinforced, frustrating attempts to penetrate it quickly before law enforcement could arrive. So... Even further explanations focus on the unique role in frontier society that Old West bankers had. Historians note that few frontier bankers had ties to eastern banks, so they were immune from a lot of the upheaval associated with um, dissatisfaction with the financial industry in that time. Um, And most started out as something else, such as the owner of, like, a general store or some other business that allowed them to put down, like, roots in the community and to build trust. So essentially, there was just a lot less hostility toward frontier bankers than there was to their counterparts back east, and a lot less motivation to steal from them. I'll say that, like, this is something that I'm just kind of realizing listening, is, like, I well, I'm a big Billy Joel fan, and the song Ballad of Billy the Kid would make you think that this guy robbed hundreds of banks yeah. by himself. <laughs> and, like, it clearly can't be more than, like, three. I mean, certainly in the West. I mean, he has a very famous one, probably his, like, first big one, 
um, was in Telluride with what I guess would be today about five hundred thousand dollars from a bank. Um, but there were, I mean, there were just a few big ones, and then that was it. So, despite all these deterrents, frontier bankers had a bunch of tricks up their sleeves to ensure the safety of the money kept safe in their establishments. So, uh, a couple of my favorites. Um, One Arizona banker had a really large, impressive safe, like, super reinforced, really impressive, um, but kept all the money in a garbage can next to it covered by a cloth, and basically he would hope that any possible robbers would make off the empty safe and not notice that the money was just in the garbage can. (laughs) And apparently, like, this was, like, (laughs) very successful. I mean, I guess there weren't that many, but, like, just people who might, like, wander by or something. Nobody ever really knew it was there. Um, Classic bait and switch. I know. Isn't that really funny? (laughs) But then my absolute favorite is a banker in Oklahoma who kept his money in a small graded box with rattlesnakes inside. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So, like, I mean, not only was it just, like, disincentivized by all the sort of, like, cultural and societal factors that were present in the old west but also like they were just really crafty i mean it was some like really i mean it was i don't know i mean just the idea that protecting your money with like snakes is somehow like so low tech but just ultimately incredibly effective like i'm not gonna touch your money if there's a real snake in there. <laughs> I if that was like the early frontier version of like a cd or something where it's like you leave, you don't touch the money for a while and the snakes multiply, <laughs> so that it's better protected. It's kind of like accruing interest. Yeah. <laughs> the true origins. <laughs> so, it just reminded me, when you mentioned the distrust for Eastern banks, I found it, uh, just a meme looking as fact up that said, give a man a gun and he can rob a bank. <laughs> give a man a bank and he can rob the world. Oh, that's <laughs> So, in some ways related to what you mentioned about crafty bankers uh, protecting their product, I actually looked at weird ways of deterring crime from around the world, generally. So, sort of attempts at social engineering to make criminals, or would-be criminals, think twice before they go through with their intended action. And in looking over a couple of these, I noticed a few themes kind of emerged. So one approach is to try to invoke guilt and remind the criminal that God is watching. Um, And this is exemplified by a mayor in the Philippines in 2010 who discouraged illegal fishing by installing two 14-foot statues of the Virgin Mary and Jesus on the ocean floor, (laughs) (laughs) like offshore of his town. Uh, And it worked pretty well. And it's also uh, become uh, more common in India, actually, to install tiles depicting Hindu gods along sidewalks to deter public urination. So that's an effective approach. Um, Another one that, another theme rather, that I noticed uh, was the idea of creating annoyance. So deterring crime by making its locale uh, an unpleasant place to be. So one example of this is actually uh, happened in 2011 um, in an incident wherein the Belfast police opted to and succeeded in dispersing an unruly crowd of bottle-throwing teenagers by blaring ice cream truck music out of their police (laughs) car loudspeakers. And also actually across the U.S. playing classical music in public spaces, which I think is counterintuitive, but apparently it works in some cases, uh, is actually... A useful as a deterrent to prevent loitering. Does it make <laughs> oh, people to go oh, away? Oh, I see. So it makes it go away. I, I thought you were going to say that it prevent like it lowers crime rates and something like playing the classical music. See, makes that's why it, to less... me it's counterintuitive. But apparently, it scares people off. Um, but I will say, having spent some time in Port Authority, the music there is very annoying, and I mm. think the quality of the speakers has a lot to do with that. It's not Mozart's <laughs> fault, you know. Anyways, <laughs> or ours. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sheesh. 
And then there was one particular example that I found that didn't really fit into any category. So I'm just going to give it its own category. And that category is geese. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2013, uh, the police force in China's Xinjiang province uh, trained geese to guard their stations at night. And they are terrifyingly effective. (laughs) In part because, just physiologically speaking, geese have really good hearing and eyesight. Um, Being birds, they can see in ultraviolet and also are better detecting subtle movements than people are. Um, They're also notably territorial and not afraid of confrontation, which, if you didn't know that, I'm happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) They're very noisy and excitable. And to demonstrate this... um, At the police station in question, at one point, a would-be criminal tried to steal a motorbike. Uh, He actually thought ahead and drugged the guard dogs, but didn't expect the horde of shrieking geese waiting for him. (laughs) He would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling geese. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that also reminds me. There's another, I think, um, in England somewhere, they, it's like some town attempted to dissuade crime by putting, like, uh, like cardboard cutouts of policemen in places where like pickpocketing was, <laughs> and apparently initially this had some wow. success, but eventually what happened was that people stole the cardboard cutouts of the policemen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our quiz this week uh, is going to be on the theme of heists, and what's going to happen is I'm going to describe to you uh, the heist, and you're going to tell me what was stolen. Ooh. Okay. Oh, cool. Uh, question number one. In Fayette County, Georgia, robbers stole $100,000 worth of what college dorm room staple from a trailer park? That's like 100,000 packs of ramen soup. <laughs> it's not 100,000 packs of ramen noodles. It's 300,000 packs of ramen noodles. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yes, wow. but okay. I also discovered, yes, there's quite a lot of ramen was stolen. Uh, but do, do you guys like ramen? Did you have a lot of ramen in college? I had a fair amount. No? Not but really. I was paying a dollar a pack, so oh, I'm man. pretty <laughs> yeah, They saw bad. you coming. Well, it's Emily, it's good that you didn't because apparently it's not smart specifically for you to live off them. Uh, this is from a 2014 study in the Journal of Nutrition from Baylor University. The consumption of instant noodles was associated with increased prevalence of metabolic syndrome in women, but not men. Interesting. Yeah. And now that you know that, do you want them more? Yeah, I I love a metabolic syndrome. Of course, I'm going to eat all the ramen now. (laughs) All right, so question two. A two-year shortage in New Zealand of what berry, whose original name is the Nahuatl word for testicle, and is sometimes referred to as an alligator pear, has prompted numerous heists around the country? Alligator testicle. Start with what I know. And then then build on that. Okay, so... I feel like if it's being called a pear, then that gives an idea of its size. And shape, maybe? You called it a berry? It is It is botanically a berry. It's an avocado. It's an avocado! <gasps> yeah. Nice. I would, when you started to ask me that, I really did not think that you were going to come out with the answer. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it was avocados. So um, there actually have been a lot of thefts of avocados due to like the... Um, the, the shortage of avocados in New Zealand. I think in New Zealand they don't actually allow you to import avocados, so all the avocados in the country have to be made there. Hmm. And so this has prompted like 
a lot of farmers to surround their trees with things like razor wire, which is like cause a lot of concern about like what if children are playing around the avocado trees or whatever. I don't know. It's a New quaint Zealand picture. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, most of these heists though are pretty like impromptu and not that sophisticated, such as the uh, pair of would-be robbers who were caught fleeing an orchard carrying duvet covers, each loaded with about forty-three hundred dollars <laughs> worth of avocados. Wow. So this is basically they were they passed an avocado orchard. They were like. Look at all these avocados! Let's go home, get our duvet, rip out the like quilting or whatever, bring it back. That was the biggest sack they could find. That's kind appropriate, of brilliant, appropriate because they're all testicles. testicles. <laughs> oh, so I just I just have to like fess up on. I learned that a week ago. Oh, really? <laughs> that they're berries. Because we were playing a game of 20 questions, oh, and wow. the guy was thinking of the word avocado. And we had a, we had a feeling, because we had just had some other conversation about avocados. It's <laughs> 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 like just thinking. We had a feeling. But so we asked, is it a, like, we figured out it was a fruit. We figured out it was from a plant. And we're like, is it a berry? And he's like, no. And then someone's like, you know, an avocado's a berry. And he's like, what? And he like, Googles it. He's like, it's a berry. It's a berry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Maybe just having seeds in the inside is... I don't know, but I also know from that same experience that a banana is a berry. <laughs> Basically, if you're ever playing 20 questions, is it a berry is a useless question. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's a berry. <laughs> question three. Due to the worldwide reduction in their numbers, what animal whose home shares a name with a famous hairstyle has become a target for theft by both aspiring hobbyists and people seeking to rent out their services? Something in the phrasing of the question made me think beehive. So, right. So, I guess that could work. Because I think I, my first inclination was beehive. And then I was like, how do you rent bees? But I guess their service is, is making honey. And you could feasibly... I think you can rent bees, yeah. You can rent bees? I think so. Well, I just learned something new. That's what the podcast is for. Yeah. Is it bees? The answer is bees. But ah. the, the service that you're renting is not their honey making. It's, it's their, their pollination. pollination. So, farmers oh. will, like, rent bees from... from Beekeepers, obviously. Um, anyway, more like bee givers yeah. in this scenario. Um, so farmers will rent out bees from from beekeepers, and mm. they'll like put them around their crops and let the bees just sort of do their little pollination thing, um, because that's just really important for farming. How um, do they recollect them afterwards? Well, they live in the hive. They they come back to the hive of their own volition. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so then they just like pick up the hive and move it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, like, I'd like to rent some bees, and someone just opens up a box, and it's like, <laughs> honor system, you guys come right back. It's like when you rent doves for a wedding, and you're like, we're never seeing these again. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so the answer was bees. Um, and so a, f- a recent example of a bee heist is, uh, in 2017, a 51-year-old beekeeper from Sacramento stole almost $1 million worth of beehives from all over California during a three-year period. He had been renting them out to farmers to help pollinate their crops, as we talked about. And in addition, there have been numerous articles recently on the like apparently incredibly cutthroat beekeeping enthusiasts of Belgium who steal hives just all the time, including a hive that was being used in a research study by the University of Ghent, which had to be started over from scratch. Yikes. And I, like, as a PhD student, I'm like, it makes me feel so bad for whatever yeah, grad student was like, just turned. Just, just gonna go down and check on my research bees. What? <laughs> <laughs> what am I gonna tell my advisor? <laughs> That's a terrible. Oh. But also probably knowing PhD students, 
they probably burned that beehive to the ground. It's yeah. like, it's gone. I don't have to do this anymore. It got stolen with all the others. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> all right, so question four. What iconic prop from Singing in the Rain, prominently featured in the titular song, when Gene Kelly swings around it while singing, I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above, the sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love, was stolen from the front yard of the crew member who was originally allowed to take it home? The lamppost? It was yeah. the lamppost, yeah. The, yeah, so the crew member who was, was on that set, he was allowed to bring it home and had it on display in his front yard until somebody stole it in 1990. But in 2005, actress Debbie Reynolds claimed to have purchased it. So either she bought it from the thief or somebody who got it from the thief. Or, hear me out, Debbie Reynolds is a thief. <laughs> I'll say it. Nobody else in the biz wants to. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Debbie Reynolds' Just truth is kidding. over here. <laughs> yeah. So, question five. 11,000 pounds of what nutty and chocolatey treat, manufactured by Italian company Ferrero, was stolen from a small town train station in Germany, along with 34,000 cans of Red Bull and 5.5 tons of coffee. Well. What was this train? <laughs> <laughs> Best train ever. <laughs> Well, firstly, I'm envious, and secondly, it's Nutella. It is Nutella, mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, I really thought I was going to get you with the Ferrero thing. I thought you were going to think it was like Ferrero Rocher, oh, no. which is also they... nutty and chocolatey. I know that, well, yes, I know that they make it. I put that in the question, but <laughs> I thought I was going to lead you astray. Damn, okay. Yes, it was 11,000 pounds of Nutella, valued at about $21,000, and apparently, based on the other things they stole, they just wanted to stay up all night eating Nutella. Um, I mean, can, can I can't blame, blame them? them. No, yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> Let's see if this one's a little harder. Um, question six. Nearly 90% of a Philadelphia museum's collection was stolen in 2018. A haul valued at $40,000. What is the museum's specialty? $40,000. Mm-hmm. Is the subject of the museum specific to Philadelphia? Like, does it have to do no. with Philadelphia? It's joking. But it's a Philadelphia museum. It's a museum in Philadelphia. Let's mm. see. Um, the Rush Hospital is there. They had a medical archive hospital, so like old medical equipment. I know they have some pretty prominent art museums, but I feel like that would have 40, been more. Would be, yeah. yeah. Let's not do like 20 questions, but you guys should feel free to ask me some like clarifying questions. Okay. So what, was were it there a... berries? <laughs> <laughs> no berries were stolen. Okay. Thank <laughs> God. Uh, were, were they historical like artifacts? They were not artifacts. Okay. Were they scientific? That is the general focus of the museum. Were they animal specimens? Yes. Ah, okay. Live animals. Oh. <laughs> but it's so not live a, animals. It's not a zoo. It's a museum. museum. Uh, it's a zoo in the sense that their main thing is that they have certain kinds of animals. Oh, okay. Are they lizards? Ma- are they mammals? So lizards <laughs> were stolen, but that is actually not the museum's specialty. Is there a snake museum? No. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't even related to this question. Rob just needs to double check. <laughs> okay. Are they vertebrates? No. All right. Are they? Uh, they're, the, they're the crawling things. They crawl. Yeah. Uh, are they spiders? Some were spiders. So it was an okay. insect or it was a an, bug museum. It is the okay. Philadelphia Insectarium and Butterfly Pavilion. Wow. And um, they had basically almost their entire collection was stolen. It looked like it was an inside job of like disgruntled employees who, not after they stole every, basically everything, um, left their like blue employee uniforms like stabbed to a wall with a knife. And it's like really wow. dark. This happened Whoa. pretty recently. 
um, just in 2018. And uh, so just a list of things that were stolen of the animals. And I just want you to try to guess which of these I made up, okay? So it included the desert hairy scorpion, domino cockroaches, bumblebee millipedes, warty glow spot roaches, dwarf hissers, Mexican fire-leg tarantula, and a six-eyed sand spider. Uh, bumblebee millipedes. I'm just kidding. They're all real. (laughs) (laughs) I already forgot all of the options. (laughs) So I want to know who is like, how much do you want for this millipede? And some guy's like, $5. Well, apparently, so one of the things is that apparently some of the... uh, some of the things that were stolen were animals that were being held there because their like specialty is insects, um, uh, but they were actually confiscated at ports of entry and are being used as evidence in like ongoing cases against the people who tried to smuggle them in. Oh, so they have oh, wow. unwittingly maybe thought that they were just like gonna sell some millipedes or whatever, and it, like the whole collection was like forty thousand dollars. So it wasn't like some uh, insane like art heist or something. But um, what they've done apparently is unwittingly perhaps gotten them and selves in much deeper trouble than they could have by, ever anticipated by obstructing justice basically yeah, yeah. In, in like federal in, uh, in federal like customs investigations my god yeah it's pretty crazy it's not like um not resolved yet a, a quick word on the value of bugs something i never thought i would have any experience in do you want to take a guess at how much like on the on the market and it's not like a very big market what what you, one might pay for a queen ant who is going to lay eggs? Ten thousand uh, dollars. Less. <laughs> How much? Uh, it's hundred. It's hundreds of dollars. Wow. Okay. People would say, "Oh, that ant is gonna lay eggs soon," and you have it like in an ant chamber. Here, here's like hundred fifty bucks. Wow. And like this sort of transaction happens among hobbyists all the time. Ant collectors and and ant people. Um, and ant people. <laughs> ant people. <laughs> ant, ant man. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or or young science teachers trying to start an ant colony for their students. <laughs> but yeah, ants are expensive, man. All right. Um, so question seven. A man in the mountains of Patagonia absconded with five tons of what that he planned to sell to bars? How does one man abscond with five tons of anything? <laughs> A trailer. Okay. Oh, sure. Would you move five tons of ice? Yeah. Wow. Really? And not just any ice. Ice from the Jorge Mont Glacier. <laughs> he just went up to a glacier, carved out five tons, put it on a trailer, and he was going to sell it to bars as designer ice. God. I and, can see the market. <laughs> yeah. Oh I, uh, designer ice, also known as uh, douche cubes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's uh, finish up with question eight. Over the course of several months between 2011 and 2012, 10,000 barrels of what was slowly siphoned off and stolen in Quebec? Maple syrup. Got yes. Me. Yeah. <laughs> so this was part slowly of something. Slowly siphoned off. Yes. So this is part of what is known as the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist, which has its own Wikipedia page. Okay. Mm. That's a real thing. In which about 3,000 tons of maple syrup, valued at roughly 14 million U.S. dollars, was slowly taken from a strategic maple syrup reserve, yes, that is a real thing, in Quebec. And it remains, today, the most valuable heist in Canadian history. Wow. That's wild. (laughs) I'm just imagining, like, the pipeline running down from Quebec to the U.S., but it's just so slow. (laughs) Like, people in Texas are just waiting for the maple syrup. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, the plate of pancakes the right there. <laughs> <laughs> a little 
pot of butter is just melting away. Like, come on, Jano. All right, that's all we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And finally, a reminder to check out our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook as Fax Machine Podcast. See you next time. Bye. Bye. In 2017, Pavel, uh, this is a Russian name, <laughs> Pavel Tverantinov, well, let me do this again, Pavel Tveret, Tver, this is impossible, Tveretinov, Tveretinov, Pavel Ter, no, no, <laughs> okay.